of our, within a few verses of our passage today, we move from the shocking accusation to an unbelievable claim. You look at verse 17, where Jesus calls them a faithless and twisted generation. And then in verse 20, he says, nothing will be impossible to you. A shocking accusation, faithless and twisted generation. An unbelievable claim. Nothing will be impossible to you. He calls them a faithless and twisted generation because they still don't understand. They still don't trust that he is bringing the kingdom of God. They're still governed by that lack of faith in God that is seen in the twisted, perverted way that we sinners always live. Even the disciples haven't got it right. For when they ask in verse 19 why they couldn't drive out the demon of the, of the boy, he tells them in verse 20, because of your little faith. And yet, it's that very same verse, verse 20, that he makes the incredible claim, nothing will be impossible to you. Verse 20, he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. You'll have the faith to move mountains. You'll have the faith that can do anything and everything. You'll have the faith that it's an outlandish claim that most people ignore as a rhetorical flourish, while others try and put it into practice and make ridiculous claims like the TV evangelists such as Benny Hinn. But Jesus is neither a joker nor a fool. So what did Jesus mean in verse 20? To get to his meaning, we've got to look at the context of this claim. Last week we saw the account of the transfiguration in chapter 17 and verses 1 to 13. There, there for a brief moment, Jesus was transfigured into his glory and the voice came from heaven that confirmed that he was both the Messiah, the Christ, you are my beloved son, and the suffering servant with whom I am well pleased, the one who is going to die for the people. And in the presence of Moses and Elijah, God says, listen to my son. On the way down the mountain, he predicts with his persistent prediction that he's continually giving them about his suffering and his death. He hadn't told them this at the beginning in the first half of the gospel, but now he is just teaching them over and over again of his suffering and death. Once they recognise that he was the Messiah, then he starts teaching them of his suffering and death. They immediately rejected the idea but repeatedly and persistently he predicts his coming rejection, trial, arrest, beating, execution. Uh, John, he says, was the forerunner, not only in preparing the people, but in also suffering as he was to suffer. Then, on rejoining the other disciples, he engaged in a healing miracle. I'm not happy with the translation in verse 15, where it gives the diagnosis of the boy as having epilepsy. That's a very modern diagnosis. It's not the diagnosis of the ancient world. 
And we are, I think, in great danger reading back our medical understanding to a description of a little boy 2,000 years ago that is so brief. What the Bible diagnoses is the boy was having a demon. But I think it's important that we make clear that epilepsy is not the same as demon possession. Just because you have epilepsy doesn't mean you have a demon. And there is, lies the problem if you translate it as epilepsy, which is not the ancient world word. If you then say, well, this boy had a demon, you start saying epileptics have demons, which is not what the passage is saying. It's quite wrong. At the same time, in talking about demons, I'm not for a moment wanting to deny the reality of demons or the possibility of a demon living in somebody. It's just not epilepsy and shouldn't be confused with that particular affliction. But in mentioning demons living in people, I also have to make it clear that they are not able to live within Christians. For the Holy Spirit lives in Christians, and the Holy Spirit will not cohabit with the demon. Now let's get back to the passage in the context of Jesus' great claim. For in this context of the failure of the disciples to drive out a demon we see the ability of Jesus to do so and the accusation that it is their lack of faith that caused this failure. For this is explicitly the reason mentioned as the reason for failure in verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. Now, Jesus had chosen and appointed them to have authority over unclean spirits. Back in chapter 10, verse 1, we read, And he called to him the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. But on this occasion, they failed comprehensively because they were part of the faithless and twisted generation that Jesus had to bear with. They were still not listening to the Son of God as he spoke. They still didn't believe that he had to die. They still didn't understand that he was bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. As John's Gospel says, he came to his own and his own received him not. They didn't trust God's word, the word of his servant. But like all sinners, they wanted God to do it their way, not God's way. God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. They say, this is God's son, we'll tell him what to do. It is so typical of the perversity of human sinful nature. It's what Jesus calls little faith. It's it's not so much that the size as the inadequacy. It's the impoverished faith, the weak and in fact non-existent faith. For he likens true faith to that of a mustard seed, which he describes as the smallest of seeds, and it certainly is a very tiny seed. If I were to hold one up to you, because I actually on previous occasions thought to myself I should get a mustard seed to show you, if I were to hold one up for you, there really isn't much point, because it's that small and you wouldn't be able to see it anyway. It is only one to two millimetres thick, and so a mustard seed, as a visual illustration, is Useless. In fact, I may as well tell you a fib. Here is a mustard seed. You don't know any better, except I told you it was a fib in the first place. 
In other words, it's not the size that counts. You couldn't have less than a mustard seed of faith, not and still have any faith at all. Jesus is not saying we have to grow our faith bigger than a mustard seed. But we must have some faith. For size is not the key, existence of faith is the key. But this requires us to understand faith. Now you can see from the outline there that I have five things to say about it. But before I say any of these things, let me remind you of the meaning of the word faith. For faith equals, and there's a really good everyday English words as to what it means, faith means dependence. And the beauty of dependence is you've got the other side, dependable and depending. Because faith is about being faithful and having your faith in something. It also means rely. So it's reliance, it's reliable, it's relying on something. It means trust, trustworthy and trusting somebody. It means belief and being believable and believing. In the Bible there is no difference between the belief words and the faith words. They are actually exactly the same Greek words. We tend not to translate it always as faith because we don't have an English verb to faith whereas we have an English verb to believe. And so when it's a verb form, we have a problem. We can't translate it into English because we don't have to faith. And so we go to believe. But there's no difference between belief and faith in the Bible. They're all the same thing. And there are these other kind of perfectly good English synonyms that we could use just as well. And I have suggested for many years that we should. But faith is such an important concept in the Bible Bible translators don't want to take it out. We all believe. Faith is just so important to Christianity. We've left the word faith in, but the word faith is shifting in meaning in modern English to things the Bible never meant. For faith is not anti-intellectual, unreasonable superstition. That's what atheistic materialists think it is. Nor is it religious or a supernatural experience. That's what magicians think it is. But it's neither of those things. Faith is depending, is relying, is trusting, is believing. And once you understand the word faith, you can see the difference between magic and miracles. For the two things are often confused in people's minds. If I pray for some healing to happen and the person is cured, is that A miracle or is that magic? Both seem to be the same. And that is because magic, which comes from Satan, so mimics miracles that come from God. In the scriptures you see this kind of mimicking conflict between the miracles and magic of the Egyptian magicians back in Pharaoh's court, imitating the miracles of Moses. Or Daniel in the Babylonian court, and the Babylonian magicians, which again, Daniel shows the miracles of God are greater than the wisdom of the magicians. So what's the difference? What's the difference between magic and miracles? Well, a miracle, according to my computer dictionary, is an event that appears to be contrary to the laws of nature and is regarded as an act of God. Whereas a magic is 
a supposed supernatural power that makes impossible things happen and gives somebody control over the forces of nature. You can see how the two things are very similar, can't you? But let me show you the classic distinction and difference between them. You see, magic demonstrates the magician's control of gaining and manipulating the affairs and the events of this world, of magicians dominating the forces of nature and using the right rituals, the right spells, the incantations to gain control of things. Whereas miracles demonstrate God's control when he acts in ways beyond our understanding and possibly in response to our requests and prayers. For prayer is expressing our faith in God as we ask him to look after the things of life, especially the things that we find too hard for ourselves. Prayer must never become magic, some kind of spell that's going to force the hand of God. It's always asking God for the things we want or need. And in asking God, we're acknowledging both his power to give it, if he wishes to, and his sovereignty to give what he wishes or to withhold what he wishes. There's no point you asking me to pray for you as if God is going to listen to me because I'm a priest or because I'm the dean of the cathedral more than he's going to listen to you or to any of his children. I mean, I'm happy to pray with you and I'm happy to pray for you, but the Christian sitting next to you has the same access to God as you do or any other Christian does or I have. You can't get closer to God than being in Christ Jesus and if you're in Christ Jesus, you're as close to God as you're going to get and there's nobody else between you and God who's closer and who has more access to God. The power of prayer does not lie in the person who prays. That's magic. The power of prayer lies in the person to whom we pray. That is faith in action. For faith must always be in somebody or in something. It's not your faith but what you have your faith in that matters. Praying to God is having faith in him, the one who gives all good things as he chooses. You see, as the old illustration has it, you have your faith in your chairs. You're sitting on your chair, you're relying on your chair, you're depending on your chair. But it's the chair that's holding you up, not your faith. If you don't believe me, remove the chair and just sit on your faith. The faith doesn't keep you up. It's what you have your faith in that keeps you up. The important thing is not that you have faith. The important thing is that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who answers your prayers. That is, the faith that saves throughout Matthew's Gospel is a faith where people have their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you with some quick Bible flipping here. In Matthew 8, Jesus said to the centurion who trusted his words, Truly I tell you, 
With no one in Israel have I found such faith. In Matthew 9, when some friends brought a paralytic to Jesus, we read, and lowered him down through the roof, you remember? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Or again in chapter 9, when a woman with a flow of blood touched the hem of Jesus' garments, we read, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Again in Matthew 9, when two blind men cried out for mercy and expressed their faith in Jesus, he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And into chapter 15, the Canaanite woman argued with him and she begged for her daughter's healing. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's Jesus who saves, it's Jesus who heals, it's Jesus who rescues. But he saves and heals and rescues those who have faith in him. Those who trust him, those who rely upon him, those who pray to him for help and ask for help. Whereas he consistently warns, especially his disciples, the little faith and its danger. So in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, he says, But if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And in chapter 8, when the disciples awake him, because of their fear of the storm, he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And in chapter 14, when he walks on the water and Peter tries to do the same, only to sink, we read, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And in chapter 16, when the disciples misunderstood his words about the danger of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we read, Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And here, finally, in chapter 17, verse 20, he said to them, It was because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. In each of these, you see, it's not the size of their faith but the very existence of their faith that is in question. If you had any faith in Jesus or God, any faith at all, faith as big as a mustard seed, then you would have the faith that saves. Or as Jesus says, the faith that moves mountains. Later on, Jesus is going to use this expression to refer to the moving of Mount of Olives in fulfilment of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. But on this occasion, he seems to just use a proverbial impossibility. Nobody can move mountains. It's like walking on water. The sheer impossibility of it makes it miraculous. Yet with God on our side, there is nothing impossible for you to do. There is nothing impossible for us to do 
with God all things are possible. That which man cannot do, God can do. Here is the great encouragement to pray. In the deepest, the darkest moments of our life, when all seems to be beyond hope, all seems to be lost, we can always turn to God. For nothing is impossible to God. We can always cry out to him in prayer, asking for his mercy, asking for his help. God is so concerned for us that the hairs of our heads are numbered. And God is so powerful and mighty that there is nothing our God cannot do. And thus, we can pray. We can pray over the most insignificant and unimportant things in life, for he cares for us. And we can pray over the most enormous and powerful things in life because there's nothing impossible to him. When it comes to prayer, nothing is too small, nothing is too big. But prayer is not magic. Prayer is not naming and claiming it. Prayer is not telling God what to do. Prayer is humbly asking God to help, casting our care upon him because we know he cares for us. I produced a book some time ago after a series of talks on prayer that uh, I think we have for sale in the bookshop from time to time. There's one copy anyway, Prayer and the Voice of God. And if you've ever wanted to know about prayer, what prayer is, what prayer isn't, I'd commend to you this little booklet because it's saying things that if I had found in another book I wouldn't have written this one. It's actually telling us that all prayer is is asking. There's about five or six different words for prayer in the Bible and they're all the verbs, the normal everyday verbs for asking. There's nothing wrong with asking God for something. In fact, every time we ask God for something we are declaring the greatness of God. We're saying, God, you are in control, you could give this to me. We're saying, God, you care for me, you could give this to me. So I'm praising God when I ask God for things. And when I refuse to ask God for things, I'm saying, God, you, you don't care. Or I'm saying, God, you couldn't do this. Asking God is a great way of praising God. Perfectly right and proper thing to do. You don't have God speak to you in prayer you speak to God in prayer. But prayer is faith articulated. Because I trust God, I ask God. And in asking God, I'm expressing my trust in God. It's speaking, it's articulating our faith in God to pray. Nothing is impossible to the man of faith. It doesn't mean that the man of faith is a magician who can control all things. For faith in God doesn't tell God to do things. It asks God what it wants. And it accepts gladly whatever God determines to give to us. And for Jesus, this was faith that is crucified. See, God could remove the mountain called Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. 
But that was not God's will for the salvation of mankind or for the glory of his son. Peter and the disciples, they would have gladly removed the mountain if they could, but not Jesus. Jesus was the man of faith, a man of miracles, not a man of magic. He knew God's plan involved and included, centred on his suffering. That nothing is impossible to the man of faith means he only does things that God wants. Only does things that further God's will. And will gladly accept not my will but your will be done. See, if I were to move the Blue Mountains today by a spectacular prayer session here in the cathedral praying that God would take the three sisters and throw them into the sea and give us a clear access right from here out into the centre of Australia's desert. If I were to do that by my prayers, people would be deeply impressed. I think the number of people attending the cathedral would suddenly and dramatically rise. I think the media from not just Australia but around the world would come beating at the door. I think it would be spectacular, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't bring in the kingdom of God. It wouldn't advance the cause of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not giving to you and me the power of magicians to reorder the universe according to our will or according to our sinful desires or according to our way of bringing in the kingdom of heaven. God is reassuring us that there is no obstacle too great for his plans upon earth. But he calls upon us to accept his plans upon earth, to live his way, not our way. The disciples didn't understand it. That's part of the reason we love the disciples, because they're as thick as we are. We can identify with them. They didn't get it. For when Jesus tells them again of his impending suffering and death, and in verse 22 following, All they are is greatly distressed because they don't understand. They hear about his suffering. They hear about his death. They start to grieve. But they don't hear about his resurrection on the third day. You see it there in verse 23? And they will kill him. And he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You see, we know about the resurrection. And if we were there and told about, and on the third day he'll rise again, we'd say, Happy Easter! Terrific! The kingdom's come! How marvellous! But they didn't hear about that. All they heard was, he's going to be killed. He's going to suffer. They didn't understand how he was establishing God's kingdom. They didn't understand the coming of the judgment day of God, the coronation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Alleluia Chorus hadn't been written yet. They just didn't get it. Friends, it's by our faith in Jesus that we are saved. Not by our good works, but by our faith. It's not our faith as such, It's by the object of our faith, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who saves us. 
by his death, by his resurrection, by the sending out of his spirit to give us new life, by changing our lives to submit to him instead of rebelling against him. It's Jesus who saves us and we must trust him. But over and over again, the world wants to trust themselves so that God will save them by the good works they do. And the world rejects God's way of saving and they say, is Jesus the only way? Couldn't I be saved by Muhammad? Couldn't I be saved by Buddha? Couldn't I be saved by... Well, if you could be, then God would not have sent his one and only son into this world to die for your sins and mine. There is only one way to God the Father, and that is through Jesus. And we must rely upon him and not make up what we want and not rely upon ourselves and not rely upon our own wisdom. Faith in Jesus doesn't turn us into magicians, but faith in Jesus removes from us the fear of the world and of any forces of the evil, one natural or supernatural. For we have a saviour who's mighty to save, mighty to save seven days a week, mighty to save 52 weeks of the year, was the song I was taught as a child to sing. And for your benefit, I'm not going to sing it now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending to us this mighty saviour who by his death and resurrection and pouring out of his spirit brings us forgiveness and new life, eternal life, as he establishes your kingdom here on earth, overcoming our sin, overcoming our mortality. We thank and praise you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ, that great man of faith, who trusted you even to the cross, seeking your will, not his own. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would put such faith in our hearts that we would trust him for our salvation and not ourselves, that we would look to him for all things in this life and accept his way of salvation, not making up our own way. We thank you, Father, that we have nothing to fear when we have our faith in you. And pray, Father, that each one of us here may have such faith in you that fearlessly we will live confident of our place in your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.